our brain's solution to our loved one not being in our presence is very clear. Go get them or make enough of a fuss that they come and get you. But the problem is that when a loved one dies, it's not that they're lost. It's that there's no map. And that is so hard to really understand. And that's why we have things like, you know, people who say very commonly, you know, I just feel like they're going to walk through the door again. Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. Y'all, I devoured the book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss last year. And I knew immediately that I needed to have a conversation with the author on this show. That's why I am incredibly grateful to share that late last year, I had the honor of sitting down with Mary Frances O'Connor to explore the fascinating work she's been doing studying the grieving brain. Mary Frances O'Connor is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, also known as GLASS, where she investigates the effects of grief on the brain and the body. Her work has been published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, Biological Psychiatry, and Psychological Science, and featured in Newsweek, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. But most importantly, I'm 100% confident that you will learn so much from our conversation today and appreciate the warmth and wisdom she brings to it. I can't wait for you to meet her. Mary Frances O'Connor, I have been waiting to say this for so long. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. I'm so happy to have you on conversation. It's been nice to um, get to know you a little bit in a previous conversation we had and to semi cross paths on another event. And so, but I'm so um, grateful. And I know my listeners are so grateful to have this time to spend with you in our conversation today to explore the grieving brain, which if you all don't know or haven't seen, um, if you don't follow me on social media at Lisa Kiefoffer MSW, you know I've already been raving about her book, The Grieving Brain. Uh, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss and the learning piece I want to dive into today. But there's going to be uh, links to the book in the show notes for the episode. If you follow me on social media, if you're on my newsletter, links, links, links to go buy your own copy um, and maybe buy a copy for a friend. Because if you're anything like me, your copy will be highlighted in bright pink highlighter marker, and then you won't want to lend out your copy. So there you go. Anyhow, fangirling out here just for a minute. <laughs> It's very, um, very, very meaningful that it connects for people. Yeah, no, it's it's phenomenal. And both of us teach loss and grief at respective universities. I've incorporated your book into some of the work that I do. And um, I'm just excited because I think part of what we're going to unpack today is I think you're really bringing a really important new lens to our grief literacy canon which is really what we need since we're sort of walking in this grief illiterate world and it's causing us a lot of unnecessary suffering. So, yeah. um, yeah. That's well put. So I'm, yeah. yeah. So I'm grateful for that. So of course I have so many questions. Want to dig into the research to what you learned with fMRIs and studying the grief brain, but I want to start our conversation where I do all my guests, which is really, um, 
helping make visible where we learned our grief beliefs, um, which of course contributes to, for many of us, our grief illiteracy. So I'm wondering if you can share an early memory of loss. And when you look back now, what were you learning from the adults in your life about what grief should or shouldn't look like, feel like, etc.? Yeah, when I was really young, I was part of a, you know, my last name's O'Connor, so a very large Catholic Irish family. And, uh, you know, funerals were pretty common because of, you know, the multi-generations. And so it's such a funny thing, but funerals were very different than I think many people experienced them. As a child, it was a chance to see your cousins. And we would have the Irish wake and we frequently saw the person who had died um, laid out and, you know, there were conversations and there was having a drink and it was not nearly as behind closed doors as I think most people experience it now. And certainly the generation of my parents, my father grew up on a ranch and I think life and death was just a part of the natural cycle. And so caring for older family members and dealing with their end of life process was and remains to this day a really common part of our family. That's phenomenal. So beautiful. We've had people from different sort of culture and religious backgrounds, of course, having different practices, but it sounds to me, and this is sort of the what I've understood from from knowing others who grew up, you know, Catholic Irish was this was more um, revered, maybe maybe celebratory yes. in a way, or just mm-hmm. uh, sort of honored as as something to 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 not hide away. It sounds yes. like, yeah, yeah, that that feels right. And even a cousin, uh, you, you know, most of the people who died, of course, were elderly relatives of my yeah. family, but. We had a cousin um, who died at 19 of a congenital heart defect that was not known. And to even see that grief be embraced was very surprising as I look back because I recognize how disastrous that is in a lot of families. Yeah, that out-of-order loss can just really shake even what we think we know about what it means to grieve. Just one more sort of pulling out a little more, a little curiosity, it sounds like sort of, you know, the morning practice, the sort of ceremony was normalized, maybe celebrated, sort of what what did grieving, because you talk a lot about sort of grief, sort of that initial burst and then grieving, did the same sort of rules apply about grieving in your family, about carrying memories forward, about meaning making that you saw kind of in the early ceremony? Right. That is a really good question. And I will say, you know, of course, my much more personal connection of a, of a bonded relationship was um, that when I was 13, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so I didn't really understand that time that it was considered a terminal illness, but I certainly knew that grief came to our family and there were lots of ways in which that wasn't discussed. Um, even in the fact that I didn't know she had a year to live, although she ended up actually living another 13 years. But I I knew that that um, tension between what you can talk about and what you can't talk about was always around. Yeah, interesting. Sort of that, that anticipatory grief and do we give permissions or not? And I think a lot of folks can relate, I'm sure the listeners, and it's definitely talked about a lot, is that there's a lot of beliefs hung up in, if I acknowledge my anticipatory grief, I'm somehow giving up yes. on this That's person. Right. And there's we don't allow, like we don't like for, in general, for us to hold two things to be true, because we're yeah. so binary focused. So yeah. it was sort of like, how can we hold loving and cherishing her and hoping for your mother's well-being and recovery and acknowledge there's a profound loss that's happening here. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I find interesting lately is, you know, as we talk a lot more about grief and grieving and what that experience is like, sometimes what gets left out of the conversation is what was it like when they were dying? And, 
you know, it seems funny because that's obviously where the grief comes from, but we still don't like to talk about what it was like to have those months or years in some cases, uh, yeah. you know, wondering, waiting, caring, worrying um, that comes yeah. before. But of course, that informs then how we feel after as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you and I, in some ways, are on similar missions, which is to sort of make a more grief literate world. So I appreciate this chance to for you to name that and for us to sort of unpack even further the anticipatory, the ambiguous, um, all the ways in which regardless of what we're doing externally, performatively in our families and our communities and our cultures, things are happening in our body mind, whether we want to admit it. That's right. Right or not. And yet, um, you know, we end up suffering when we sort of don't admit it. But before we dive into the juice, I want to ask one more question, which is because I get this question a lot too. How on earth did you end up becoming (laughs) the person who lives and talks and researches and studies and teaches, um, loss and grief how 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 would you sort of encapsulate that journey to to this work that you're doing well certainly you know because of that experience of my mom i think i always felt more comfortable talking with people who were grieving than maybe many of my colleagues especially when i was young um and so you know doing hundreds of interviews with people and then trying to map up the responses they were giving me with what I was seeing in brain images and blood draws and, and so forth, I think came a little more naturally to me. I found I wanted to just believe what they were telling me was happening and then figure out why, as opposed to sort of judging what they were saying was happening. And I think the, there has always been the scientific curiosity for me there. How on earth, you know, does the brain encode we have this magic relationship and, yeah. or even a difficult relationship. And then how on earth do those, you know, neural firing patterns turn into our experience of grief and what we learn over time. So there has always been also just that burning question. Curiosity. Art. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that really continued to motivate me um, to want to learn more. Yeah. I love that combination of just sort of innate curiosity, but also the connecting it to the sort of personal experience and personal curiosity and sort of Mm -hmm. those tandem. And of course, I'm definitely can relate to that work. So, so you have your PhD in psychology, right? That's the field Mm -hmm. that you're in. Yeah. Tell us about the um, studies that you, I mean, like sort of like walk us through a little bit about these are pretty un- Unprecedented, they're not pretty, they are <laughs> unprecedented studies of under of if not, we've looked at the brain for lots of things, right? Yeah. In research over time. But this was really a first of its kind to think about can we look into the brain and know something about what's happening when grief, you know, comes upon us. Tell us a little bit about kind of the mechanisms of that study and mm-hmm and some of your early learnings. Yeah. Well, I had really originally started in graduate school being very curious about the physiology of grief, what happens in our cardiovascular system. Um, Given we know that the broken heart phenomenon is a real thing, that when we lose a spouse, for example, we're at higher risk for our own mortality in the next six months or so. It was clear to me there was some sort of physiological response. And so my Uh, graduate work mostly focused on those kinds of questions in the cardiovascular system. But as I was nearing the end of my graduate training, um, a researcher who had done some studying um, actually at University College London uh, on functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, which at that time was brand new technology. Yeah. He said, I think we should take these folks who've been in your dissertation study and we should put them in the scanner, which was such a novel idea. And at first I thought, oh, good Lord, that's an awful lot to learn uh, because neuroscience was very new at the time. Um, But we did. And it was so rewarding. So we asked people, the the first question we had, of course, was how are we going to evoke grief when people are in this pretty sterile medical environment of a a neuroimaging? And go. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Turn it on, turn it Perform off. Perform your grief now. Yeah, yeah that's not really going to work so well. Uh, and so we did what, you know, people might do when they were sharing stories about their loss. We asked them to bring photographs of the person who had died. And, and we scanned those into um, a computer and then also asked them for words that were sort of resonant about the loss um, itself. Uh, And so we scan those as well. And so while they're in the scanner, they're able to look at photos of the person who's died. And we compare the sort of reaction in the brain to just looking at a picture of a person, right? So we're not so interested in what you do when you look at a person, but if you add to that, what is it to look at a person for whom you are grieving? And so the for whom you are grieving was what the initial um, studies uh, really were showing. And it was that that study published in 2003 was the first grief MRI study. And then we followed that up years later. Uh, I did a study at UCLA looking at grief severity, right? So not just are you bereaved or not. And but, what does it look like in the brain if you are yeah, or not? Kind of yeah, the on-off. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Which was sort of the first study, which was a good place to start. Um, but the second one was much more about when you are having more yearning for this person who's died, what does that look like? What is the grading, not grading, um, the, the spectrum of that look like across different people in the brain? And you know, these early neuroimaging studies, they're small and they're, you know, the first attempt. So I would say as a scientist, I have lots of, you know, they're not perfect. But something that we learned, we had thought for a long time about bereavement as being a stressor. And certainly it is. But we thought about it as sort of as though you're adding on, like you went to work one day and now you have twice as much on your workload as you did before, Right. right? But as we did these neuroimaging studies, we started to realize that the brain, once we fall in love with someone, once we have that bond, the brain sort of interprets the world as you are part of this twosome, right? If I use the word daughter to describe me, that actually implies two people in the world, doesn't it? And the same with the word spouse, that's two people. And I think we came to understand that our brain really encodes uh, us as a part of this bonded relationship. And so what it means is that when that person dies, it's not just that there's a stress added, it's that a part of how we function in the world is taken away. And that the brain has to even come to understand that the person has been taken away, that the reality is they're not coming back. And all of that is much harder for the brain to do then I think we were giving much credit to. Yeah, then it just being an additional stressor. It's, exactly. it's really, you know, it reminds me of, um, you know, I developed this grief metaphor. I can't remember if I shared it with you before mm-hmm. about sort of grief being the, you know, we are build our lives by the stories we tell and any kind of devastating losses akin to the manuscript of our life being torn to shreds. Yeah. And and we are grieving as, as us rewriting and, and yes. living into this emerging story of your life. And what you're sort of saying is some of this early science was saying that's exactly what happens when we say we feel like we're losing a part of me. Yep. That is a very literal interpretation of the brain. Is that right? That's exactly it. I think that's a wonderful metaphor that you give. And, and I think, you know, in although we don't know all the nuts and bolts, it's not just a metaphor, right? That is how the brain is is understanding what's happening. Yeah, it's really sort of, which is why I think when we think about words, when I've asked students in the past or, Mm -hmm. or people that I've been working with to sort of think about words, they come up with words like untethered Mm -hmm. and torn apart and shredded. And it's really because it's that um, foundational. And you're saying the brain is really like, trying to fire on all cylinders, trying to comprehend really the incomprehensible in a way is, That's is, That's is what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And once you have that bond, which is itself a physical change that happens in the brain, once you have that bond, you are just set up for the fact that you will have grief when you're separated from that person. So it's not like it's a choice. 
It's that once you have love, you will have grief. That is simply the way that it works. Now, we can get much better at handling that grief. We can learn how to put it in perspective. We can develop skills and maybe even just familiarity with grief. But it's not people people really re- respond to the idea that oh this is a this is a physiological it's not a reaction. Choice. right this is really happening you're listening to grief is a sneaky bitch podcast i'm your host lisa kefauver grief impacts our whole selves as i recently shared in my ted talk knowing more about grief can make it suck less it's not just simply the emotional response of sadness Grief impacts all domains of our lives, including our cognitive, physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational well-being. When we come back, Mary Frances explains our need for attachment and security and what's happening in our brain when we're grieving the loss of that relationship. I am so fortunate to have so many incredible guests coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. After the show, head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing this show with someone in your life who might need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Mary Frances, there's so many directions I want to go in. One of them <laughs> is, I mean, because really what you're talking about is grief and grieving is really about a learning. It's about us sort of learning a new way of being. But you also touched on the fact that it's Grief is inevitable if we have this love, this bond, this attachment, which is also a neurophysiological thing that happens to us. But I know you've talked about, and I try to talk a lot on the show too, that we can even grieve things that we attach to in terms of notion. So like if you didn't have a healing or positive or nurturing relationship with a parent or an estranged relationship. So like we kind of attach ourselves to the story of motherhood or childhood or is that right? And, and are the same things happening in the brain is the same grief experience happening for us, even when we're grieving those not attachments? Right. It's such a good question. And the way I think about it, I mean, first of all, yes, it is very clearly grief uh, for things other than just the, you know, the absence of this person on this physical plane. I think of it this way because you know, evolutionarily, our loved ones, those bonded relationships we have, they are as important to our survival as food and water. If you don't have loving relationships, if you don't have that security and trust somewhere in your life, you have things like failure to thrive. And so if you don't have belonging, you don't have food and water. Yeah, evolutionarily speaking. That's it. it. Yeah. And so I think of it as you know, the brain had to evolve really clear mechanisms about how do I how do I encourage you to reunite with your loved ones, right? And what chemicals can I use to sort of uh, uh, get you to go search for your for your beloved because you're yearning for them? And so that was all very um, uh, physiological, I guess I'll say, uh, in terms of that bond being formed, and then what happens upon the separation from that bonded person. But as I said before, there are a number of things that you lose when you lose a loved one. And so part of what you lose is part of yourself, right? So I said before, if I think of myself as a daughter, that implies two people, but it also is, you know, how do I function in the world when I have changed, how am I the best daughter I can be if my mother isn't here? How, you know, how am I a parent? In what ways am I a parent now if my child has died? And so the reason I think that focusing on that aspect of loss, a part of yourself is lost, is that then I think we can see the the other kinds of metaphorical losses that the brain recognizes as being somewhat similar. So if I retire, 
my gosh, being an academic is such a central part of the way I function in the world that I would lose a part of myself, right? Yeah. And loss of function, loss of health, loss of um, safety, loss of all sorts of things. Um, These also then are experienced as uh, a grief, not because of a specific bond that is broken, but because of the similarity of the experience to when we lose a bond. That loss of self. Yeah. Yeah. Those ambiguous losses that you're talking about and sort of all of their different iterations, which um, I think, I mean, we're grief illiterate across the board, but I think ambiguous loss in particular is a place that, I don't know if you find this, but so many of my students are recognizing and naming losses they never give themselves sort of permission to acknowledge. So I appreciate that this work even helps us bring those kinds of losses into our vernacular into our conversation. Part of what you were just touching on, I think, um, was sort of this location of ourselves and our location of ourselves in relationship to other people. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about sort of this notion of of here, now, and close? Yeah, sure. Um, which I thought was so fat. That section of your book was just literally, I was like, I'm going to run out of highlighter ink anyways. But I thought that was so interesting about t- helping us sort of understand why you know, we experience grief, even when we have these losses, even maybe when the loss, the person is still alive, but not like in the case of your mother, you know, having this diagnosis. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about here, now and close? Yeah. So this for me is really um, thinking about why grief may have come about. And, you know, I do think it really starts with once we were mammals, right? Once we didn't just sort of lay an egg and move on like reptiles do. Once we had to care for our our pups, our our babies, yeah. um, we had a new problem that we had to deal with as mammals, which was how do we all find each other, right? How do I find my mate who is co-rearing, you know, my, my pup with me or uh, who is co-parenting my baby with me? How do I find them again? How do I trust that they will find me? Uh, not to mention, you know, how do you not lose your toddler in the grocery store? And right. lots of reasons why we needed these invisible tethers that we call attachment bonds. And so I think the brain got very good at understanding where they are and when we will see them again. In fact, I mean, right now, if I ask you, you know, uh, wh- where is your boyfriend or girlfriend? Uh, yeah. When will you see them again? You probably have right. a pretty clear idea, right, of how you would get to them if you needed to. And so I think the brain carries these dimensions around of um, of here and now, right? When will I see them again and where? And there is a third dimension, I think, that has been thought about less, which is this dimension that I call close. And so in the same way that someone can be near and far, or someone can be seen later or now, we also have this close dimension, which is sort of like, are you and your sister close? Are you two more distant? And you can see even in the words we use, we describe it as a dimension of closeness. Well, it turns out that the brain actually Um, we have some neuroimaging evidence to suggest the brain uses these dimensions similarly as well. Now, the importance of this for grieving is when a loved one dies, there is a real problem. Our brain's solution to our loved one not being in our presence is very clear. Go get them or make enough of a fuss that they come and get you. But the problem is that when a loved one dies... It's not that they're lost. It's that there's no map. And that is so hard to really understand. And that's why we have things like, you know, people who say very commonly, you know, I just feel like they're going to walk through the door again. And part of the reason for that is because we also have this close dimension, which is this person would be trying to reach me, would be trying to come back, or I really should be trying to find them. And we find that people often will scan, you know, the crowd that they're in thinking, I wonder if they're here and then think, well, that's a crazy thought. But it's because of this closeness that we assume that people are still uh, 
attached to us with these tethers. So what happens is you get some of those strange behaviors, but also we get a lot of emotions because the brain for a while just believes they're out there somewhere, right? This is, you know, you you pick up your phone to text the person that something happened and and then you realize you can't do that. And so I think one of the sort of subconscious things that happens is, well, what would it mean if this person you love just suddenly dropped off the face of the earth and wasn't trying to reach out to you? I think you might feel really angry or you might feel a lot of guilt. Like, what did I do? You know? But to, how did I how did I ruin this? And so while it is not rational, just like texting the person isn't rational, I yeah. think we have these strong experiences of anger and, and blame and guilt because there's a way in which our brain still believes that they are attached to us and that that's sort of the best solution the brain can come up with for why they're not responding. And so I think those emotions, which often are very intense for people and people often don't themselves understand if looked at from that perspective, make a little bit more sense. Yeah. I would add fear to that too, of course, because of the survival instinct. Oh, yeah. I, I think so many of our listeners can relate. I absolutely know. I can't tell you how many times even, I mean, 11 years since I literally held my husband in my arms when he died, I will have some good news happen or something happen with our daughter and yeah. want to tell him or, you know, pick desperately. up the text. So yeah. desperately, I think what I appreciate so much about this sort of mapping, this description, this here close now, this sort of understanding of our brain as having mapped, mapped these sort of, I don't know, I think about it, I don't remember if you use this language or not, but these deep grooves yeah, you know, of sure. of kind of like the person. I think of the person, then I know how to reach them and get them. And these are these deep grooves. And so, part of why we feel so untethered, yeah. and why we have these maybe very dis for sure disconcerting, counterfactual kind of like things. Like I'm going to call him, but I know he's dead. But still, I reach yeah. to call him, is because we have these maps that we've had to memorize. Yeah, sort of deep in our subconscious. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take us time to learn, you know, sort of different grooves or sort of, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors there, but that's yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think that's really profoundly powerful and all of the array of emotions, which is not just sadness. And you just mentioned anger and so many people say to me all the time, I feel angry and then I feel crazy for feeling angry at the dead person, or I feel bad. And I am anger. I mean, just to what you said, to reiterate, anger among all of these emotions are a completely normative response to this loss, given what we, what you're telling us about the way the brain works. Yeah. And I think if there's anything that I try to convey with this work, you know, what's the, what's the point of doing all these studies is often what you're feeling is way more more normal than you think. And not only is it normal because if we actually talk to each other, we would recognize, oh, lots of people feel this way like I do. But in addition, even knowing there might be a reason why you continue to feel that way, I find very helpful, even though that's very basic science, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think about it too, in that I find it helpful, even having read this book again, you know, 11 years on after my husband died, you know, eight years on after my friend Joe died, um, even after losing my beloved rescue dog a few years ago, I it reminded me of this permission giving to be with. Yeah. And, and it's not, I do think what we're like the conversations we're having here and the work that we both do of normalizing that we talk to each other about like, oh, you feel that way too? I do too. That's yeah. important. Yeah. But to also just to normalize or to sort of say, like I sometimes hold my hand over my heart and just say to myself when I feel those big floods of those confusing thoughts or I notice that I went to reach out to Eric, I think, of course you like, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. I have a sort of spiritual teacher who always says, sweetie. She talks, she's like, talk to yourself like sweet. Like, of course you did, sweetie. Yeah. Like, how could it be any other way? Yeah. And I think if we can soften to these very what you're saying are very like scientifically based. Yeah. Like real responses, 
then we won't suffer as much because we double down our suffering when we judge ourselves, when we criticize ourselves. Yeah. And I think there's a funny thing that happens, which is that people think, well, if I'm still reaching out to that person, then is it because I think they're in heaven? But I don't, you know, for a lot of people, they don't really believe in heaven or they don't believe in an afterlife in the way that historically a large portion of our culture did. And so for me, providing another possible reason for why you might feel this way, which is that once you bonded with that person, that physically changed your brain, right? And they are in your brain physically forever. And so of course it makes sense, sweetie, that you're going to still, you know, talk with them or seek advice for them or even just carry on their values because they are a part of you. I'm just curious on a personal level, did that study, did, did learning that shift how you even permission gave yourself for, for whatever grief you still, grieving you still feel, for instance, with your, the loss of your mother or others? Did that shift your own relationship with grief at all? Yeah, in a funny way, I think it has. I will tell you that the losses that I have had in my life, um, they are not, uh, I don't yearn in the way that I hear people talk about yearning for a partner or for a child. And I had, you know, my own grief reactions with the death of each of my parents and each of those were very different, but I think that it helped me to understand some of the feelings that I was having, but in many ways, it really helped me to understand people whose experience was different from mine. So that although I had not had that just bereft yearning for them to be back, I came to really understand why someone might be having that experience and the intensity of it could be because of all of these neurochemicals. You know, we're talking about dopamine and oxytocin and and opioids in the brain. Those are really powerful motivators. And so it suddenly made other people's experience even different from mine make sense. Yeah, yeah. Boy, wouldn't the world be a better place if we all had that understanding that while grief is something 100% of us will experience multiple times in our lives to really understand deep in our core that um, it's okay if your experience looks or feels or sounds different than mine and that doesn't make it more or less valuable. It just is. That's right. right. Exactly. And, And when I imagine, which is never the same as experiencing it, but for example, my best friend since we were 14, I know that her death would be very different for me yeah. and would and would lead to that yearning in a way that I can understand at an intellectual level, even though I haven't experienced it. And somehow that, to me, um, both makes me a little less fearful and also really helps me to connect with what other people are experiencing. I think having that information to help us understand um, these differences that we will have, but also as you were maybe even alluding to when you think about sort of the someday loss of of your very close friend is that it also helps us to show up with more compassion, remembering that we confuse where we think we have to walk in other people's shoes, right, to have been there, but we don't. We just have to this kind of literacy that you're talking about, this kind of awareness of what different ways in which grief is showing up for those of us will not just help us in our own grief, but profoundly influence the way we show up and hold space and bear witness for others, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's right. And in a funny sort of way, you know, uh, I learn a lot from teaching the students, just like you, I'm sure do. And one of the things that it really teaches me is... I treasure those times with my best friend in a way that I just don't think I could be present for as much if I wasn't aware of how special it is that we have this time together. And so that sort of, 
you know, what we might call post-traumatic growth, right? Yeah. So this idea that once you kind of understand, oh, we are all mortal, and you really deeply understand that because you've lost someone, it can transform the way you have new experiences, the way you value things or the way you feel the richness of experiences. And I feel that I really benefited from that in my in my lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. My listeners know, they've heard me say this before. I think I was, I've been through multiple losses, multiple traumas across the course of my life. And I do think in the later years, not just going through so many, but also doing the work of making space for the grief and the loss, I savor and delight in in friendships and connections and being present. And my curiosity has like shot through the roof. And I think I attribute that for me. But it doesn't it doesn't mean, by the way, if you're listening and you're early in your grief, no yeah. one is or should be expecting you to have that. That's just a like, I'm let I'm 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 lighting this lamp way down the path that's for if and when you get there. But I do think that's something that I have noticed. And yes, I definitely see that as I listen to you and read the papers and, and do the work with my young students. Yeah. And, uh, and I agree. I, you know, I, <laughs> I say in the book, I don't actually think you can give advice to a person who's grieving. And, you know, as a clinical psychologist, people might find that a little surprising, but and it's just not how insight works. So yeah. I can say that for me, that is an experience that I have had. And if that sets off a light bulb in someone else, then that's fantastic. And if it doesn't, yeah. that's fine too. Absolutely. No, I so appreciate the nuance there that you said that. And since I've been doing this work, every time I share something or write something, or even the, in, in my own book that I'm writing right now, yeah. I really offer up what I call invitations. They're really yes. just invitations. They're not advice. They're, this is what I've noticed. This is where I fell down and got detoured. This is what I've noticed in other people. Maybe try this and see when you're ready. And also, if you don't want to, that's okay, too. It's okay, too. Uh, which is yeah. countercultural because we live it in is. a like, you know, you just going to be an expert ways. and yeah. you're going to just know it and do it. And then it's going to be ta-da. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Difference. I think of it as almost like, um, here, let me show you what the world looks like through my glasses and yeah. see if that, you know, brings different thing in, brings different things in your life into focus. And if it doesn't, please give my glasses back because it's not going to help you. you yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. It might make you blurrier. It might make like, it harder. It, so yeah. try someone else's glasses, you know. You know, I don't think that I've ever met another grieving person who hasn't spent at least some time pondering the shoulda, coulda, wouldas of loss. So when we come back, Mary Frances explains that while that instinct of rumination is perfectly normal, it's actually a form of avoidance. She helps us understand how to practice noticing it when it happens and some ideas for moving through it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Pitch podcast. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind-the-scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading? Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakeefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. You know, I can't tell you how many people have stopped me in the street, messaged me, or nodded in agreement when I've said the title of this show. They nod and smile because they know for sure that, yes, indeed, grief is a sneaky bitch. Honestly, they've shared that it helps them feel seen in their grief. That's why I am so excited to share. I'm launching a whole line of merchandise, starting with Grief is a Sneaky Bitch hoodies, tees, mugs, journals, and stickers. 
You can visit lisakefavor.com to shop for your favorite items. Hey, maybe even pick up one for a friend as a show of grief support. Well, you touched on their yearning and sort of the different ways in which some of us experience yearning. And I've always thought about grief as being a certain kind of homesickness, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that I think about grieving. But there's some other terms or ways of thinking about how our brain is working when when we experience grief and grieving that I'd love for you to sort of maybe unpack, or I'm just curious for you to share a little bit more about sort of... um, what we know about how and why we have sort of counterfactual thinking, mm. why we have and and rumination, yeah. which um, I talk often about with my clients and my students. And I think folks are going to be surprised to know that rumination is avoidance. Not yes. Or, right. <laughs> which seems counter. Speaking of counter, with seeing counter to it. But can you tell us a little bit about sort of counter? We touched on a little, I guess, already, but yeah. counterfactual yeah. thinking and and sort of the role of rumination and maybe the caution of rumination. Yeah. So I think that when we think about the thoughts as also a part of our grief reaction, so it isn't just feelings. Yeah. Uh, and it isn't just physiology, right? It isn't just our blood pressure goes up, but it's particular kinds of thoughts as well, or particular patterns of thoughts. And so, especially early on, it's very, very common to just not be able to stop thinking about it, having what we call intrusive thoughts, right? So you're stopped at a stop sign, and all of a sudden you're just overwhelmed thinking about this person and what happened. Um, or you're trying to go to bed at night. Uh, that's very common. And these thoughts just keep spinning through your head. And there's a flavor that some of these thoughts often take, which is what uh, I call the would have, could have, should have, right? So these are the counterfactuals. If only, yeah. if only I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner, or the doctor should have known to run another test, or if only they could have known the train was going to be late, you know. And the trouble with those thoughts, although they are very natural, for most of us, they decrease over time. Um, But the reason, part of the reason they can be so problematic as time passes is because if you think about it, each of those stories you're telling in your head all of those stories end in, and then my loved one would have lived. Yeah. But the reality is that they didn't live. And so it's like your brain is sort of trying to undo what happened. Sometimes at the cost of great guilt or blame, right? Yeah. But nonetheless, you're, you're spending time in these thoughts, which aren't actually helping you deal with the reality, the painful reality of what it is to actually just have lost the person. What does that mean? Not how it could have been different, but what does it mean that it is? And so one of the reasons that I think this is problematic is when we're spending a lot of times in these alternate universes, you know, where things went differently, you can't possibly be in the present moment if you're in those thoughts going round and round in your head. And yet it's only in the present moment that really wonderful things happen too, right? It's only in the present moment that, you know, your grandchild is telling you the goofy story about what happened on the playground or in the present moment, you know, if you're not engaged in the present moment, you might completely miss the beautiful smile that the barista gives you for just no reason at all. Yeah. And so the trouble is, if we're not in the present moment, we're not actually learning what does it mean my life now? How does, how do I restore a meaningful life? And that's the way in which rumination can be avoidance. So yeah. that if I am stuck in these thoughts going round and round and round, I'm necessarily not in the present moment, feeling and interacting and loving the people around me. And it's there that many of the positive things happen. Yeah. Such a powerful reminder. I so appreciate um, you bringing that to us and even sort of reading that um, many months ago when I first picked up your book, because I think, and I think the, the important thing to remember is, to pull out of what you just said is it's totally 
normal and typical to be in those thought patterns, to be in the what ifs and the would and could I think there isn't a griever alive that hasn't spent some time in that landscape, Absolutely. right? Like we do that. And everybody knows that's my favorite word. It's like tattooed <laughs> on my arm, you know, and part of what we want to be on the lookout for, I call it being like a should detective, or in this case, it could yeah. be like a would detective is to the degree to which that's keeping us in spaces of unnecessary suffering, keeping us in stuck. And I don't mean a stuck because there's some quick linear path. No, no. But if it's causing us sort of unnecessary harm, if it's keeping us from being present to checking in with our body mind, what do we need? How do we need to take care of ourselves or to the present moments, as you said, of these opportunities for present love and to be presently building new connections, not in an effort, by the way, to replace Nope. That person, that's garbage. And I appreciate the way you talked about that in the book, but to be present to the richness. Yeah. And the truth be told, to be present to all of the emotion, the painful emotions of reckoning with the reality of this loss. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I, the last thing I want is for people to walk away, you know, from this podcast and think, Oh, now I'm doing that wrong too. That <laughs> right. is definitely. We are not saying that. No. <laughs> and and the way I think about the utility of giving a label to these thoughts yeah. is that then I have a choice. So eventually you can become aware, oh, I'm I doing that thing. These thoughts. Right. I think that's what they were talking about. Oh, that's these thoughts. Okay. So that in and of itself is just useful. Oh, other people have this too. But then for myself, I think I've realized I have a couple of choices once I have that realization. One is I can ask myself, okay, so how useful are these thoughts for me right now? Right? And and maybe they are. I am not suggesting that thinking about those things is wrong. But my question to myself is usually like, how much of the day am I spending doing this? And would I really actually rather be doing something else? And could I just try to do that, right? Could I just call a friend right now or, you know, go for a run or whatever it is that kind of takes me out of those thoughts? Yeah. And the other one is, and this was a long time coming, but if we really think about the idea that these sort, this sort of rumination could be a form of avoidance of emotions, sometimes the question I ask myself is, okay, you're having these thoughts again, but do you really need a good cry? Yeah. And often just asking myself that question means I break down in tears. Yeah. And then the weird thing is, once I've had my little crying jag, the thoughts have gone away. Yeah. And so allowing for many possible responses to whatever it is you're feeling is like carrying a big toolkit around. Okay, today, I think I'm having these thoughts and I might need to go for a run. And on a different day, I'm having these thoughts and that might mean I really need to just, you know, sit with some Kleenex for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think when you, I love this, but you know, people know I'm trained in narrative therapy. So words and language and having language I think is so meaningful, but I love that. Like if you can just be like, Hmm, I'm noticing the thoughts or, you know, the label of avoidance, it gives us, it's like a pause or a break. And then it gives us a a permission or a language to say, now what? And we're saying this in a very sort of logical way. And again, if you're early in the messy time of grief, you're like, Mm, I'm not stopping that train. That train is just Mm -hmm. going. And I've been there, done that. Philia, go with it. You know, it's got to do. But part of what I think the invitation, I guess, is here is is as you begin to recognize it, and then as you begin to practice labeling it, hmm, it's avoidance, then you're opening the door to what you were just sharing, Mary Frances was just sort of like, okay, now what do I want to walk through? And really, I think it's really just information. Like when I when I catch myself in those spaces, I go, yep. huh, oh. this is information that I need to be attending to something that I'm not attending to. Yeah. Taking care of my and physical body or my emotions yeah. or, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think this might be the perfect moment to sort of, we've been using this, we keep saying grief or grieving or grief and grieving. Yeah. And I think just to sort of clarify for those who may think, why are they using two words that mean the same thing? um, To clarify a distinction that I make between those words, because I think this is the useful moment. 
So grief is just that that natural response to loss. It's just the overwhelm that you feel and you think, oh my God, I'm not even going to get through the moment. Like you said, the train is just on its way and I'm barely holding on. Grieving, on the other hand, is a process. And so it's not the in the moment, it's what happens across many, many, many moments. And one of the things that happens is you discover, oh, I'm going to keep having these waves of grief. And maybe over time, I can have a little more response to how I'm going to deal with those moments of grief. So that you can, on the one hand, say grief never ends. And that's absolutely true. 23 years after my mom died, I can look at her handwriting and, you know, fall into tears. Grief is going to keep happening. It is the overwhelming emotion that just arises when we're aware of a loss. But grieving means my process has been, I understand that it is okay to have that feeling and that the feeling isn't going to last forever and that I can reach out for comfort when I'm having that feeling or I can take myself for a run. And so the grieving part is you change in how you understand that you are now a person who has grief. Grief doesn't end, but grieving means that it does change. Exactly. Oh, I love that. And I know you sort of sort of think asked us to think about the time component that's necessarily combined with grieving. And I've talked about it this way, which I think is is a similar is that that we are in a relation we enter into a new relationship in the wake of loss, which is we are in a relationship with grief. And like all relationships, relationships change over time. And so our relationship with our grief, meaning it's intensity, it's, it's, you know, expression, it's the meaning that we attach to it, all of that is changing over time. And that I hope gives some hope that it won't even though it feels like it, it won't always feel like this way, because no matter what our relationship with grieving, our relationship with grief will change. That's what the experience of grieving is. And that's, um, I think, a can be profoundly important. And I hope if there's someone listening who's earlier in their grief can just file that away, you know, for a later date, because I think one of, for many of us, one of our biggest fears, I think in the, especially again, in the early phases of grief, whatever that means, again, there's not stages, um, is Will I all? I will always feel this. I way. will always feel. And this way. and I I think for many of us we don't give ourselves back to that permission giving, yeah, space to feel the hard feelings because and I know I've said this before. I remember saying if I open this door, yeah, and it's like it is never going to close. I'm always going to feel this way. And so yeah. this this distinction you make between grief and grieving is so important, which is our relationship with. All of the aspects of grief, the cognitive, the physical, the spiritual, the relational, the emotional, yeah, inherently changes over time. That's right. That's right. And I think that can be why thinking of grieving as a form of learning can be so useful, right? Yes. Because I think of it this way, like, you know, <laughs> you can ask the question like, when did you get over your wedding day? Right? Yeah. Like, that's not a question that makes any sense, right? <laughs> Yeah. But but what's so interesting is the death of a loved one is a similar thing. It's an event. It happened. Yeah. It will always affect you. But are you better at marriage now than you were five years ago? You probably are. I hope. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you still have things you think you might need to learn? Probably. And so yeah. grief, I think, is a similar way. It is just a part of you now, but you get better at understanding it? What does it mean? How do I handle it? How do I talk about it? What do I do with it? Um, and so I think of it that way. On the one hand, it, it is always there. And on the other hand, we we have a different way of, of being with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the learning, the sort of notion of, of grieving as learning has resonated yeah. with me for a long time. And I think in your book, in The Grieving Brain, you do such a beautiful job, both sort of at the scientific level, but also at the story level, helping us understand that. And even that notion, I think, is so powerful to the griever because we often say, I don't know how to do this. And the answer is, of course you don't, because you've never been here before. But if you... 
But if, of course you don't, because you've never been here before, but if you consider yourself as learning, right, then there's some permission there to stumble and fumble your way through. Yeah. Well, and for me, I think this also gives me a little bit of faith and comfort that brains are meant to do this. Your brain is good at learning, it turns out. You have a lifetime of evidence of this, right? And so in that moment, you think, it's going to be like this forever. That's not giving any credit to your brain that actually gets better at understanding things and gets better at offering solutions. And that is just, you know, that physiological process that you can't rush that. It's not like, you know, you can't just sit down and learn calculus one day, you got to do arithmetic first. And and so having sort of that faith of like, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I have some faith that human beings know how to do this. And I am a human being. Yeah. I love that shift in perspective and that permission giving. Again, I think all the time about how much we suffer unnecessarily because we individually, collectively, systemically, culturally don't give ourselves grace for the growing, the shifting and the learning that we do. So to think about and to be reminded that I've learned everything that I've known. There was a time when I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to walk. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know. I still don't know calculus. So sorry. But, uh, you know, (laughs) I didn't didn't know all those things. And then we did. And there's no reason to know that there's no reason to believe that we won't also know how to do this. And the do this, by the way, maybe as we move towards the end of our conversation and think about sort of finding a meaningful life, to do this learning doesn't mean forgetting your person if it was a death loss or, and, you know, I think even people fear this notion of like learning to live in the world without them as if as some sort of betrayal, but you're learning to live a meaningful life And that learning, you have the capacity to do, right? But our goal isn't, I'm learning just to forget them. So I love this notion as we begin to close to think about what we're doing in grieving is learning, right? We're shifting this relationship. And this learning to live in a world without, if it's a death loss, without this person, which is not, by the way, asking you to forget the person or to eliminate them from your mind, right, at all. We're not saying that. But to learning to live with them and their memory and be present for the future learnings relationships is kind of what we're, I even hesitate to use this word, the goal of grieving, because it feels very sort of like, you know, here we go back to productivity. And like, but when we think about, you know, this, you know, we teach our students sort of like the moving between like oscillating between loss orientation and restoration orientation, blah, 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 theory terms. But for the listeners thinking about how we might incorporate this learning in terms of where we're going with our grief and thinking about a meaningful life, which isn't necessarily making meaning of the how or why someone died, but it's building a meaningful life, what might you offer up that you've learned in your work and your research about that process of working towards a meaningful life? You know, I would give a personal answer to that more than an empirical answer, which (laughs) which is really what I've learned is that grief is part of life. It is, um, it, there is no goal. It just is something that you learn about. And learning about it, having learned about it, understanding your own and other people's grief, it enables you to make different choices. It enables you to, um, because you know more, to do the things, use this time that we get in a meaningful way, whatever that means to you. And if that means spending the rest of your time writing about and, you know, papering your house in pictures of your loved one, and that's a meaningful life, then go for it, right? If that's what feels meaningful, that doesn't mean you're stuck. That means that you are doing what you want to be doing, because now you understand that grief is part of life. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think I so appreciate this sort of differentiation between sort of, um, you know, trying to make meaning like it happened for a reason nonsense that gets thrown out there versus finding 
part of what we're learning and we're moving towards again, not in early grief, somewhere down the road, that might be a mile or 20 miles or a hundred miles for you. We're, we're using that learning to sort of put our stakes back into this life and bring some meaning that can be acts of service, that can be the ways in which we savor beauty and joy, that can be the connections that we build, that can be the memory keeping that we do of the person we lost. And it can be a combination of all of those things, which is actually how I would describe sort of how I'm walking in the world with this grief. But it's it's um, it's not a destination. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. This has been so useful, Lisa. Oh, this has been such an amazing conversation, Mary Frances. Thank you so much for our, your time today. Listeners, again, going to be dropping the links to The Grieving Brain in the show notes today. And um, we will look forward to hearing more from you, learning more from you, um, just being involved in, in following your work, Mary Frances. Thank you so much for the gift of your time today. So it appreciate was, it. It was so good to be with you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I hope you learned something and feel a little more seen and held in your grief. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing today's episode. Thank you for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.